the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 24, Episode 7, Does China See the U.S. as an Existential Threat? Talking with Matt Turpin, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Our guest today is Matt Turpin, a specialist in U.S. policy towards the People's Republic of China, economic statecraft, and technology innovation. He's also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies. He joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. Hello, Matt, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Matt, please take a few moments to tell us about your work and your career. Well, sure. I've been sort of focused on on China policy for about the last dozen or so years uh, within a broader sort of construct of U.S. foreign policy and national security. Up until about the end of 2019, I served as the White House's China director at the National Security Council, Hmm. where I helped formulate and, and implement U.S. policy towards China. I did that for about two years. Um, before that, I had performed a similar set of duties in the Department of Defense uh, during the Obama administration as as one of the joint staffs leads for China policy. And before that, I had spent a number of years in uniform in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, as well as various other places for the U.S. government, Middle East, uh, Europe, and across the United States as an army officer. So now I, I still stay involved in sort of national security policy and foreign policy, particularly around China and its and U.S. relations towards the PRC, as well as uh, how we interact with, with other countries in the world as they consider their, their policies towards China and, and what that's going to mean for a broader economic system and the kinds of tech, uh, sort of competition that's beginning to emerge between the U.S. and China and the implications that is for, for other countries in the world. Very impressive background, Matt. The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference wrapped up here in San Francisco on Friday. 21 Asia-Pacific economies met for one week to discuss regional economics and politics. On the sidelines, Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping met for four hours for the first time in 12 months. Give us your impressions of that meeting, and what were the results? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think one of the main takeaways I'd sort of lay out is that this meeting that took place in Woodside, California, is really very similar to the meeting that had happened almost exactly a year before uh, during the the G20 summit in Indonesia. both, Both countries, both leaders had sought to have a meeting within each other one to, to to establish a floor underneath a relationship that that seemed to be getting worse and more more hostile as time went on, and each sought to to sort of set uh, an agenda for their governments to find areas of dialogue and cooperation uh, as they sought to manage the differences that that each country had. And so I think you know, as we as we look at today's or, or last week's meeting we should sort of have in context that, that essentially what, what was agreed to bef- a year before was essentially being re-agreed to again. Some of the main takeaways, some of the main sort of, of areas in which the two leaders came to an agreement 
you know, one was to restart a, a counter-narcotics dialogue in which apparently China would be willing to, to take a look at uh, reducing the flow of precursor chemicals mm -hmm. that go into fentanyls that appear to be arriving in Mexico and being smuggled by cartels into the United States, uh, contributing to, a, to an opioid epidemic, you know, which, which has killed tens of thousands of Americans. Another area of agreement that they, they, they came to was to reestablish a military-to-military -military dialogue. It remains to be seen what, what that will look like, but it appears that the two, the two leaders agreed to restart that. There was a climate uh, agreement uh, that took place that was announced the day before the two leaders met, but they agreed to, to, to pursue some areas of climate cooperation. And it appears that they continued to re, uh, reaffirm the necessary, you know, the, the economic dialogues that Secretary Yellen had announced about a month before with her counterpart. So in many ways, those areas showed sort of that, that the U.S.-China relationship uh, could get back to some degree of dialogue and interaction at, at the leader level. But I think it, it remains to be seen how that is actually going to unfold over time. Um, I think one of the things that we've we should we should be aware of right now is that that I think Beijing concludes that that it can use meetings and and hold meetings sort of hostage uh, as a way to achieve the outcomes that they would want to get. And so I think that they they largely view the U.S. administration as far more desirous of these meetings and that holding these meetings hostage can get acquiescence or can keep the U.S. from doing things that, that, that Beijing doesn't want them to do. And that dynamic, I think, is going to continue to unfold over time. And so we should not be surprised that, it, that the next time something that becomes difficult between the two countries, those kinds of high-level communications will be held at risk in order to deter the United States from, from doing the things that Beijing doesn't want it to do. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, Chinese media coverage at the conference, uh, TV, print, social media was certainly the, the largest contingent outside of the U.S. contingent, and in fact, seemed to be almost as large as the U.S. contingent, at least viewed from, from my perspective. And it reflected a, an intense interest about the summit and the conference as a whole. At the same time, as you mentioned, our relationship with the People's Republic of China has become somewhat strained and testy. You recently wrote an article describing the Chinese or the People's Republic of China, I should say, as seeing the United States as an existential threat. Where do we stand? I'd, I'd first, you know, one clarify that, that I think that, that the Chinese Communist Party views the United States and the ideas that it sort of stands for as an existential threat. I don't think that your average Chinese citizen believes that that's the case, although it is, it is the, the position that, that the party would want them to believe and increasingly want them to believe. Now, I think obviously just in the run-up to this summit, just as we've seen in other leader-to-leader -leader summits between the United States and the PRC, is we do see a softening in, in language, you know, largely that's to justify why the leader would be meeting with an American president as a softening of the language. But I think you know, fundamentally the party views the U.S. and ideas of limited government and, 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 and liberalism as fundamental threats to the way in which the party rules and presents to the, to the Chinese people 
an alternative way in which they could be governed. Mm-hmm. This this goes back to, to Mao. I mean, this goes back, you know, really to the beginnings of the Chinese Communist Party, this sort of one of a position of awe about the United States, but also one of deep paranoia and fear that the United States intends uh, to bring about the downfall of the party. And this creates some real consternation inside the party and continuously reinforces their belief that the United States is out to get them. We can go back to, to sort of, you know, in, in, in the wake of the protests and then crackdown in Tiananmen Square, Deng Xiaoping came away believing that it was the CIA and the United States that had inspired these students to go into the streets and protest against them. When in the summer of 1989, that is sort of the furthest from the mind of of the administration of George H.W. Bush as they're seeking to maintain a degree of stability in Beijing as they are looking at all the other things that are starting to happen in the world. And they want to maintain a stable relationship with the PRC. Mm-hmm. And so I think this dynamic, this fundamental sort of paranoia that the party has, that the United States is constantly seeking to inspire color revolutions and to overthrow regimes like theirs colors the way in which the party views the United States and limits the areas in which we could we could maintain and, and develop true trust uh, and, and sort of mutual respect. I think that's that's something that we should keep in mind because it colors the way in which the party operates. Didn't uh, over the years since we began our economic opening with China and of course the bilateral trading relationship between the two countries is enormous. It's about $750 billion a year, I'm, I understand. Yep. So it's it's an enormous bilateral trading relationship, I think the largest in the world between two countries. As we develop that trading relationship, I was always I, I always paid attention to the fact that successive administrations anticipated that with increased wealth and education in China, that eventually the Chinese regime would adopt some more liberal Western values, whether the rule of law, transparency in government, or concepts that are the norm in in Western democracies. So that seemed to be a that seemed to be like an underpinning assumption of yeah. and justification, if you will, for our increased trade, but. That seems, but that seems to have evaporated. Uh, it it never happened. Or I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there's there's well, the rule of law doesn't apply. Yeah. The transparency doesn't doesn't apply. And we went along our merry way. We the United States, we went along a merry yeah. way for decades, hoping hoping against hope that eventually the the communist would reform, and they never did. Yeah. No. I I, I mean, I so so that fear and paranoia that. That the party has is not unfounded. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I think it's very clear that U.S. intentions, particularly after the end of the Cold War, right? So I think you know, one we should we should separate the the thought processes and the approach that the United States took towards the PRC before the fall of the Soviet Union and what it looked like after the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Before the Soviet Union, I think we should be very clear that you know, our rationale in the 1970s for reestablishing establishing formal relations with the PRC was one of of using the PRC against the Soviet Union mm-hmm. right I mean this is this is the fundamental logic that 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 President Nixon uses as he makes a decision to to make an opening you know also to, to bring about you know to negotiate an end 
to the Vietnam War, but it's it's viewed through the lens of using a relationship with the PRC, which has already gone through the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s, mm -hmm. and using the PRC against the Soviet Union, right? And of course, when the Soviet Union collapses, within a broader mindset that, that is taking place within the United States, in which you know, what we're seeing is sort of the end of history, democratic capitalism is now sort of the, the final form of governance. Mm -hmm. uh, we've come to believe that that using economic development, right, using economic engagement can drive political liberalization. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have some examples of this. We, we, we look at, you know, what had happened in the Republic of Korea. Yes. And we see, you know, we see an authoritarian sort of dictatorship. And through economic engagement, we bring about sort of liberal democracy to take root in, in the Republic of Korea. Uh, in the 1990s, we see the same thing happening in Taiwan, mm -hmm. we see you know, a shift away from from an authoritarian, right wing authoritarian dictatorship with martial law. We see the dismantling of martial law. We see the the, the amelioration of of sort of, of of hardline political views, the allowing for elections and multiple parties to to emerge, and to, and so much so that now we see a Taiwan that is deeply democratic, with a with a diverse and and highly robust sort of political life. And obviously, we see the same things happen after the fall of the Berlin Wall mm -hmm. across Eastern Europe. It's what we hope would happen in Russia. We would see this kind of this liberalization take place. And so I think we should place the China experience within that context. Right? We have a theory about how the world will develop. And we think that the use of economic development, economic engagement, will drive the kind of political reforms that we would like to see and that we would that we view i think sincerely is beneficial to the chinese people just as we thought it was beneficial to every other population and of course that theory doesn't always work right, right? so it isn't as if that this is an is a completely naive approach right so we do have examples of it working and therefore it's entirely reasonable that we would we would pursue that i think it's a you know I think it's 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 right to call it a hopeful strategy. It's one in which you hope that through development, a country helping a country get wealthier, more technologically advanced, that they will see the we mean in, in goodwill for their development, mm -hmm. and that we'll see a softening uh, of of their political system, and to sort of make them soluble within a liberal international order. Mm -hmm. And I think one could argue that. Much of the reason why we have Xi Jinping today is that that process was working up through really the end of the 2010 or the end of you know, the beginning of the 2010s. Can I just jump in there? It, yeah. If it was working up till the end of the 2010s, what was was there? Yeah, and I mean, I mean the the the, the early 2010s. I'm the, sorry. The, so the early, the, uh, Xi Jinping. Yeah. The, the early the early 2010s. Was there a catalyst? Was there an event that triggered this about face, this moving, this going back to communist orthodoxy and rejection of even the mildest forms of reform under Hu Jintao? Was there a catalyst or was there a trigger? Well, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's the party seeing itself losing power, mm -hmm. right? They can see themselves fracturing. They can see the development, you know, deep, deep corruption across the party. You know, so Xi Jinping enters power 
with a mandate by the party that the party sees itself as fracturing and succumbing to what Mao Zedong used to call peaceful evolution, right? That the United States would pursue peaceful, like it would secretly undermine the party and bring about the kind of evolution that the United States desired. And that this, that this is a pushback against this. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you see Xi Jinping come to power and he is obsessed with the fall of the Soviet Union and why that took place, right? And, and how the Communist Party of the Soviet Union lost its its will to maintain power and he he ascribes this to, to, to historical nihilism that the party started to doubt itself and that you know this isn't just gorbachev but this goes all the way back to khrushchev's secret speech in which he denounces stalin in the early 1950s and that this begins the rot within the communist party of the soviet union and that and that they must become more ideologically pure and they must retake control right so this idea the things that we had encouraged you know the largely a separation between what the party does and what the state does Mm -hmm. right so that the state would have its own purview you would have sort of normalized processes within the state bureaucratic processes you'd have a rule of law that that, the judiciary could make independent judgments all of these ideas these this constitutionalism is a fundamental is it is an existential threat to the party yes the party views those things as the things that will undermine their power mm-hmm. and when they look at it they look at it as it is the united states that is causing this to bring about our demise and of course to a certain degree there is a there's a bit of truth to that but there's also the aspect of which there is also the chinese people that look at this and also desire it and so it's very difficult for the party to admit that their own people actually don't want what they offer. So they must find an outside enemy to assign blame to this. Mm-hmm. And that's where and that's where this, this becomes very problematic for our strategy, is that once the party regains the ability to gain control of sort of the high ground of, of the entire nation, then our continued efforts at economic development you know and making and helping them become more technologically advanced becomes much more problematic now because we're not watching the political transitions we're actually now feeding into a much stronger mm -hmm. party which administration which american administration first recognized this dramatic change was it the Obama administration? Of course, we've you know there was the Obama administration, the Trump administration, currently the Biden administration. Did was that realization was that realization during the Obama administration and continued into the Trump and uh, Biden administrations? So you know, I, I mean, my personal observation is that that this debate was was underway in the last twelve to eighteen months of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But I think. In, in certain elements, you could go back to the George W. Bush administration, and you could see that there were inklings of this debate going on at the end of the George W. Bush administration as well. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, there has been an undercurrent, right? So, so when we think about, I, I personally subscribe to the idea that, that the United States has had a strategy to deal with China you know, since since the reestablishment of relations. Those strategies have changed over time, and we and we uh, and we reevaluate them over time. And sometimes we choose to stick with an old strategy, and sometimes we make uh, we make a change. But the debate, the debate over how sh- how our relations should with 
relationship with Beijing should be formulated. Part of that began to break down near the end of the of the George H or the George W. Bush administration, and I think there was strong debate during the first term of the Obama administration about how they should treat this. I think there was a, a, an understanding and a, and, a, and a belief that we could come to some sort of a, an agreement with a new leader, right? So this obviously when, when, when President Obama took over, this was near the end of Hu Jintao's uh, period of rule. I think many assumed that, that Xi Jinping was largely a reformer, uh, that he was a child of the Cultural Revolution. He had suffered greatly under it. I think many of us made assumptions about how he would then respond. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look back, there's a famous New York Times uh, op-ed published on, on January 5th, the 2013, uh, in which it predicts that, that as Xi Jinping comes to power, he will become this great reformer. Mao's tomb will be drug out of Tiananmen, his portrait will be brought down, Liu Xiaobo, who is, who is currently the, the Nobel Prize winner, would be released from prison, and you would see a flourishing of, of greater reform and opening. And that was sort of the prediction of Xi Jinping's entry into power. Yeah, ironically, if you go back and read the speech that Xi Jinping is giving on that exact same day, it is one that is, that is decrying the collapse of the Soviet Union. It is this idea that they're in a deep ideological battle with the United States. Mm-hmm. It's this idea around that historical nihilism must be resisted and that they're in a long drawn out competition with the United States and that they must, they must strengthen themselves as a party to do this. This is sort of the opposite, I think, of what we had thought was the case. Right. And so that's when things start to break down as we start to see that, that our expectations of what our strategy would result in don't meet the reality. Let's, and so that's that's really by that last year and a half mm, of the Obama administration. Let's fast forward to the last year and a half when yep. we began, when the administration, not only the U.S. administration, but also uh, Western European, other Asian allies, began talking about decoupling and de-risking. Tell me about that, that because that, that's a dramatic shift from where we were before, particularly with regard to U.S. companies, European, other Asian companies making investments uh, in China, how did we get from how did we get from this concern about uh, this concern about existential threats and that sort of thing to something very concrete? Yep. Of course, we had the tariffs during the Trump administration, and now yep. now we're talking about decoupling and de-risking, and we're talking about small yards and high fences. Talk to me about those because they seem those terms seem to be very concrete. And yeah. uh, very concrete in terms of, of limiting, downplaying the the relationship between the two countries. It seems as though we've we've uh, sped up our change in relations with uh, China. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me start with. I think there's something sort of. I think we should be we we should examine and be kind of critical about the terminology, right? So decoupling and de-risking suggests that. That there is there is a sort of binary choice, right? We're either coupled or decoupled, mm-hmm. and of course, I think we should remember that this is a spectrum, right? We were never coupled to the Chinese economy, right? Mm-hmm. There might be a high degree of trade, but since you know, for example, since since the Tiananmen massacre, the United States and Europe have had a comprehensive arms embargo on China. That's never been lifted. Mm. There are significant capital controls between the two countries. 
right? Our internet, our internet platforms are ones that we are most familiar with from the United States' perspective are not allowed to operate inside China. And the ones that started were, were, were phased out over a decade ago. And so I think in, in many ways, we have to sort of, we have to place some boundaries around our ideas here, right? It is not as if we, these were two completely coupled economies. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about a complete decoupling. What we're talking about here is there was a relative coupling and a relative decoupling, relative de-risking that is going on. And these things are consequences of these broader geopolitical assumptions that, that we were making, right? So when the United States, and I, and I would also say Europe and Japan, when we pursued a broad policy of, of economic development and, and hoping to bring about political liberalization, mm -hmm. it made an awful lot of sense for us to incentivize our companies in order to establish those kinds of connections to bring about the economic development that we were we were desiring because we thought that that economic development would lead to the political ends that we thought we were we would achieve right and as we have shifted from a, a policy of assisting the chinese economy and developing it and bringing about political liberalization to one of strategic competition that would suggest that, that there would be many more areas that we would likely discourage those kinds of economic interactions. And of course, that's very difficult for the companies and investors that had been that had set up their business models under those old assumptions and that other strategy. Mm -hmm. Right? That's that's the challenge here that we're dealing with. You know, the the business models and strategies that companies have in place today were built for the circumstances that used to exist. Right. And now that those circumstances don't exist anymore, those business models are less optimal. They, they don't make as much sense. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge I think that, that companies are having. Now, they, they often look to the U.S. government or look to their home governments to sort of say, don't do this. But the reality is, is that geopolitics drive business models, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Right. So I suspect that what we're going to see is continued pressure on companies, on investors, to find ways to diversify away from the PRC. And that's that's not exactly the best outcome, but it is sort of the least worst outcome of the kind of future that we're going to find ourselves in. Let's shift our conversation at this point yeah. away from foreign direct investment into China. Let's talk about the, the Chinese economy itself and the entrepreneurial fizz that, that has occurred over the last... 30 years. I mean, there's no doubt about it that uh, that entrepreneurialism in China seems to have uh, have been a, a huge driver to get the economy to grow to where it is today. Yet, as a result of the the signals from the Xi Jinping regime to people in China about more of an emphasis on security, less of an emphasis on economic growth. I mean, that's certainly how I perceive it. That message seems to have acted as a wet blanket, if you will, on this, on this entrepreneurial drive and fizz, which has been so key to the growth of the Chinese economy. In a sense, it looks like an unintended consequence of the 
Communist Party of China saying, "Gee, we need to we need to batten down the hatches. We don't want to don't want to have the rule right. of law. We don't want to have the transparency that they have in the West." So the, it seems as though the unintended consequence of, of clamping down on that has been to to give pause to entrepreneurs. It, would you agree with that, Matt? Yeah, and I think it. Yeah, I think it has. You know, part of it is that Xi Jinping and and his followers often view decisions by the market as maybe some somewhat frivolous, mm-hmm. right? So we look at this. You can see this in a crackdown entrepreneurialism in in sort of the education space mm-hmm. uh, around video games and other things, things that might make sense from a, a commercial economy, right, where customers are driving this and this is what this is what people want and they're willing to pay for. And you have you know, a set of leaders in Beijing who don't who don't think that those are legitimate decisions by the market, and that they must intervene in ways to prevent that from happening, and that those things should go to what they would consider to be either more strategic or more national security focused mm-hmm. sort of outcomes, and that that intervention in the market sends some pretty disturbing signals back to entrepreneurs who had thought they were operating in a system in which you know, they could pursue what they what they thought would provide the best returns and mm-hmm. and and what the public would want. And that I think has has sapped a large degree of confidence out of those who would start businesses and would be the economic engine that the party needs to continue its transformation into a you know a middle income country into a high income country. Right. That that those are the kinds of those are the exact people who they need to be doing what they're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. who are now discouraged and stepping back. And I suspect that what this sort of leads Beijing into is that middle income trap as they make a transition from low income economy mm-hmm. and they are trying to sort of bridge that gap. And by intervening at these key moments and not conducting the kinds of further economic reforms, uh, which would create the stability and sort of the, the wherewithal to be able to continue to make investments into the future, you have a whole bunch of people pulling back from that. Mm-hmm. And then to to add on to that, right? So if that isn't bad enough, the PRC has entered into, I mean, a far more hostile and non-permissive international environment, mm-hmm. right? So if you imagine sort of where they were a decade ago, a relatively benign international environment, um, they had laid out a series of reforms in what was called the third plenum of the 18th party congress this is november of 2013 so essentially exactly a decade ago Uh, and what they lay out is that they need to make a number of economic reforms to transition their economy from what had helped them get to the position that they were in to move up to the next stage of development Mm -hmm. and they conclude that they need to make a number of sort of market liberalizations remove the party or move government control of a number of areas of the economy in order to elect continuous you know, flourishment of investment and economic prosperity. And what they end up doing is is starting and stopping nearly essentially all of those reforms that they had announced. Mm-hmm. And they fail and they fail to fulfill any of them. And so now they're a decade on and we're now starting to see the compounding problems that come from the failure to implement those reforms. And in fact one and of those- today's world is just that much more 
is just that much more difficult for them than it was a decade ago. And in fact, one of those problems that that was brought to my attention during this APEC conference is the 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 rate of youth unemployment in China. Apparently, youth unemployment now stands at about twenty four, twenty five percent. Is does that number That's, ring true yeah. with you? That it, it does. I mean, I think yeah, that, I think that's what we're seeing in terms of reporting. Obviously, Beijing has has restricted uh, data that comes out, but but that is, I think, what we saw as they cut off access to data. It doesn't advertise very well for the party's success. And now, essentially, you know, you know if the last ten years is that the party came roaring back to grab control of the Chinese economy, you know, a decade on. It does not look good. Mm-hmm. The Chinese economy looked much, much better when the party was having tenuous control over the Chinese economy, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's a pretty damning indictment against the party. I suspect that the party's reaction to that will be to find someone else to blame for this condition. Of course, and that and that ready and that ready someone is the United States. That's the thing that stands out as the the boogeyman to blame because of course accepting response Xi Jinping accepting responsibility for failing to make the reforms that was handed to him by people like Li Keqiang a decade ago that cannot be the thing that is whispered even though I think I suspect that it is whispered by many let's move on to China's increasingly I don't want to use the term bellicose, but let me throw it out there. It's somewhat bellicose relations with its neighbors in the, uh, adjacent to the South China Sea. And then we have seen alliances arising like AUK-US, where Australia, UK, the United States have come together to form a, a defense association. We yeah. also saw during the summertime the Japanese and Republic of Korea prime ministers meeting with President Biden at Camp David. And in fact, that was there was a side meeting at APEC of those three leaders to emphasize the importance of that relationship. And then thirdly, also at the APEC conference, we had the announcement of the the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework which yep. will bring India into the trade mix. And incidentally, India has just recently announced in the last uh, last couple of days that its GDP has now reached $4 trillion. Of course, that's a, four, a far cry from China's $19 trillion. Nevertheless, yep. it puts India in position to overtake yep. both Japan and Germany as the world's third largest economy. So we've we've seen these we've we've seen this coming together with the AUKUS, yep. Japan AUKUS, yep. AUKUS Japan, yep. Korea, and now IPEF. Yep. What is the and um, by the same token I'm we're seeing we're seeing China looking to expand the BRICS. Uh, We also saw a um, a Muslim leaders arriving in Beijing this morning to call for peace in Gaza. So China's moves internationally, give us us a sense how they're reacting to this strengthening of of alliances on its borders and what it is doing and how effective are the measures that China's taking to, to build up alliances elsewhere? Well, I think your, your term bellicose is is apt 
Beijing is threatening and continues to threaten a number of its neighbors with aggression and sometimes you know, open conflict, whether that's across the Indian border you know, in the summer of 2020 to, to actions against you know, various members of, of ASEAN, right? the latest aggression and hostile interactions that are happening between the, Ch- the Chinese and the, and the Filipinos. I would also uh, you know, you remind that, that the Japanese, right before the APEC summit, uh, went down and, and conducted you know, at least what the, the outlines of a, a Japanese-Filipino defense arrangement mm-hmm. would look like. Beijing's actions, as well as its three-decade-long military modernization effort, has encouraged its neighbors to pursue collective security. I think one might suspect that you know, it's the U.S. that's sort of causing all these things to happen, but I think it's more accurate to say that, that Beijing is encouraging its neighbors to find collective security arrangements mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to protect themselves. And that's, and that's quite troubling for Beijing uh, because it's very difficult for them to put together an alternative. Does Beijing see its actions in the South China Sea, those little islands that they've created, some other measures that they've taken against other countries, neighbors in South China. Do they not see that as somewhat provocative and kind of pushing their neighbors into the arms of these newer defense structures? Do they not see that, or are they so blinded by their own communist philosophy that they they don't see their own fingerprints as being the yeah. in part the cause for this my experience in in dialogue with my chinese counterparts over the years whether that's from my time in the department of defense dealing with them and my, my time at the white house or now as i do things in what we call track two events where both you know not officials from both sides talk to be honest i i, I suspect that they that this is a blind spot for them hmm. that it's very difficult for them to empathize with how their actions drive collective security seeking by their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, it, it appears that the way in which they rationalize it to themselves, that, that this is some massive conspiracy against them. When in, when in, from my perspective, it is that, that their actions are driving these things to happen and to make it more difficult for themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, one only needs to look at the incredibly needless antagonism that, that Beijing initiated against India in the summer of 2020. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. This is not a fight that Beijing needed to pursue, mm-hmm. but in doing so, it brought life back to a quad relationship between India, the United States, Japan, and Australia. Mm-hmm then in many ways may not have taken life again. But, but, but because Beijing conducted an attack, killed you know, dozens of Indian soldiers, mm-hmm. it created for itself a whole new set of problems. It is debatable that the features and rocks in the South China Sea are worth to China the, what it costs them diplomatically and in terms of, of its own position internationally intimidating its neighbors and, and forcing them to, to give up on things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, one, one needs to look at sort of what happened during the administration of President Duterte in the Philippines. Here was an opportunity where you had a Philippine president that appeared to want to move away from a U.S. security relationship. Yes. And instead of embracing him, 
and essentially compromising on China's claims in the South China Sea with regards to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. They refused to do any of those things, and they put Duterte in this impossible position in which he was forced to come back to the U.S. And now you have President Marcos, who is more than willing to embrace that. Yes. And it it just suggests an inability to sort of see how its own actions impact their own interests. And, and that's unfortunate. Just coming back to the conference, I spent a, I spent a week there. I found it fascinating, made some, some great uh, new acquaintances at the International Media Center. But the, the message that kept coming through loud and clear uh, from delegates, from journalists, particularly those from, uh, from China, was the importance of this $750 billion trade relationship, the bilateral trade relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. There seemed to be great interest and passion on the part, as I said, of uh, Chinese journalists and uh, delegates as I spoke to them about this relationship and how important it is and how it needs to be cultivated and nurtured and uh, continue to grow. But that is not something that – I didn't get that impression from Xi Jinping. I I, I didn't get that impression from from the – Biden administration, but certainly from Xi Jinping, I just didn't get that impression that this was a relationship, this is a critical relationship that that needs to be nurtured and and grown. Uh, did you, is that your perception or is that, uh, or is that just something that, uh, something scuttlebutt from the, uh, from the floor yeah. of the conference? Well, I mean, of course it is the Asia Pacific economic coordination yes. Exactly, and so of course that that is the area that that folks would would focus in on. But I think it's I think it's clear. I mean, if if Xi Jinping were focused on the economic prosperity and development of his own country, mm-hmm. there are a number of things he would not be doing. Right, and it would suggest that that those are not his primary motivations. I suspect that, and I, I don't I don't know this, but I suspect that that much of Xi Jinping's interactions with with President Biden had to do with communicating you know, how important it was that the United States abandon Taiwan mm-hmm. and about how China's annexing of Taiwan is an inevitability that cannot be resisted. Mm-hmm. I think that that approach is, is much more likely to lead to a far more difficult relationship between the U.S. and the PRC than any talk of how important the $700 million trade or $700 billion trade relationship is. It suggests that that number will likely go down. Yes. Given that that is what the concentration is on, mm-hmm. you know, an over securitization of that, of, of their own interests is going to cause those things to go down. And I think that, that U S companies and U S investors should be mindful of where this is going mm-hmm. and that they themselves need to make their own sort of risk informed decisions about what kind of, you know, how exposed do they want to be to this? Mm-hmm. It is a shame that this is the sort of the path that we're heading on, but I think it is the path we're on. I don't see Beijing stepping off of that path. And it would suggest that the United States is going to have to rely much more on military deterrence and that that economic relationship is clearly not as valuable to Xi Jinping mm-hmm. as we would hope it would be. And that I think is going to be, is going to lead us to some pretty, 
pretty disturbing futures for us. Well, Matt, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what yeah. are your closing thoughts as regards the inevitability of what you just said? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel that we might be able to avoid the the conflict, the confrontation that you've outlined that I, I would have to agree with your logic that that seems to be the, the direction that we're headed? In your in your closing thoughts, are there bright spots out there in this relationship that would uh, that would argue that we we might see a a slowing down and a uh, a return to sanity? I mean, first of all, I, I don't think that conflict is inevitable. I think I think we are in a period of very sort of hostile rivalry, mm-hmm. and that and that the logic of military deterrence and the logic of collective security is going to play a much more prominent role, right? But if but the logic of those things is that if we are successful in conducting deterrence and collective security, it will deter actual conflict. I think what we have to be is very realistic that, I mean, obviously Xi Jinping is not immortal. We will have a new set of leaders at some point in time yes. inside the PRC. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that there are people inside the Chinese Communist Party who see many of these things as self-defeating. Yes. And we should be ready to re-engage with those folks when they are prepared. But I think we should be we should be realistic about how likely it is that we'll see this before we have different leaders. Mm-hmm. So we may find ourselves in it. So so Xi Jinping, I believe, is 70 this year. Mm-hmm. So we could see him around for another decade. Yes. Maybe more. But but obviously at some point in time there will be a new set of leaders inside the Chinese Communist Party, and that may create the opening for us to have a, a restarting of of a of a truly mutually beneficial relationship. But I kind of think that that's that's farther in the future. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, we should probably focus on how do we actually achieve deterrence against what I am afraid the Chinese Communist Party believes that it can use force to achieve what it wants. Mm-hmm. And we should dissuade them of that as the best way to avoid actual conflict. Well, Matt, how can our listeners follow you? Uh, website? Well, I'm going to give you my, I think the best is my, I publish a weekly Substack with the very unimaginative title of China Articles. Yes. Um, so it's just China Articles at Substack. You can Google it and you'll find me. And you can sign up for free. I provide sort of a, a laydown of of articles and, and think tank reports of what's on China, U.S. China policy uh, and some commentary. And I do that I do that each week, although I may not, I may do a, a, an abbreviated one this week because of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I'm not on the other areas. Y- I'm not on the other things. I see. Okay. So Twitter sub- or X. Yeah. So, so, uh, and nor LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn yes. at, at Matthew Turpin. I'm happy to, happy to connect there as well. But Substack is the uh, China articles, and Substack is the area where, yep. where our listeners should be able to follow up with you on a on a That's regular right. basis. Yep. Well, well, Matt, I want to thank you very much for taking the time and joining us today. Very insightful comments, and uh, of course, given your background and given your history on the policy side, we're very fortunate to have that perspective from you today. So, again, thank you for joining us, and look forward to engaging you in this uh, this conversation as we go forward. Well, Jim, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 474. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Pandora, 18 platforms. 
and join our global audience with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.